everyone. We are Pure Health Educators with the Take Control Initiative. My name is Sydney. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Jada. My pronouns are she, her. My name is Evren. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Anna. My pronouns are she, they, and you're listening to the podcast, Not Your Mama's Sex Talk. Not Your Mom's Sex Talk, and today we're here to talk about stigmatized communities, and we have the whole gang in here. Woo! So as you should know at this point, we're peer health educators with the Take Control Initiative here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Take Control is a nonprofit organization that provides access to contraception as well as sexual and reproductive health services and education. And just a little warning, we're going to be talking about some potentially sensitive or triggering topics, so skip ahead as necessary. And another little disclaimer, we're not medical professionals, we're just students out here, and anything we discuss on this podcast is based on our own research and experiences. So, okay guys, stigmatized communities in sex and relationships, let's talk about it. Stigma describes negative attitudes or beliefs associated with a person or group, and you know, stigmatized communities are generally disapproved of and not spoken about openly and honestly. So this podcast today is going to take a little bit of those layers off. Yeah, so we wanted to talk about like some of the communities in sex and relationships that maybe you don't learn about in sex education or like are even viewed as taboo. So people just aren't talking about them or when they're talked about, it's talked about in like a negative or like taboo stigmatized way. So we're trying to, you know, inform people and normalize um, these communities because there's nothing, they are normal. So yeah, there's different there's more than one type of relationship and there's different kinds of sex and ways to enjoy pleasure. And those seeking to explore these communities shouldn't feel any guilt or shame. And it's crazy because stigma can mean so many things. But when I think of it, I feel like it's usually discrimination against a certain group and it can even be physical abuse or violence. And it's just a lot of bad stuff that people don't deserve for exploring different kinds of things out there. Definitely. I mean, stigmatization can lead to social isolation, violence, or discrimination, like Jada said. Yeah, totally. And, like, no one should feel bad for what they love, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So there are plenty of non-monogamous types of relationships out there. Like, we could go on and on and on (laughs) about it. But I think what we should focus on is polyamory. So the difference between polyamory (laughs) and polygamy is that polyamory means multiple loves and polygamy means multiple spouses. So polyamory is only one type of non-monogamous relationship out there. It's obviously different than your traditional monogamous, one-partner kind of relationship. Definitely. And what they focus on a lot is consensual and ethical non-monogamy. So this is not just you being like, hey girl, I need to uh, be with multiple girls every day. So like, that's not the same thing. Definitely. And it's always communicated with the partner. So it can be sexual, romantic. I've seen a lot of people have just platonic partners, just somebody to hang out with, but, like, have a more strict definition of what their relationship is. Yeah, I do think it's important to note that, like, it just means, like, loving multiple people at once, basically. It's not inherently sexual. I think a lot of times polyamory is sexualized when it doesn't need to be. And, like, everyone was saying, like, you can be asexual and be in a polyamorous relationship. So, like, polyamory does not equal sex, necessarily. And so when a lot of people hear the word polyamory, they do think of polygamy, meaning multiple marriages, multiple spouses. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the most common form that we have seen in the media and historically is polygyny, which is one man marrying multiple women. And then on the flip side of that, there is polyandry, which is more rare in Western society where one woman marries multiple men. Yeah. I did not know there was like specific names for this, but I think that's really interesting to know. And also just like that polygyny, 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 is that, okay, I think is, (laughs) is more common because I feel like you do kind of think of like a man with multiple wives. And I think there's some religions where that's common Mm -hmm. and kind of a part of the religious practice. So it's good to know. So there are some benefits to polyamory slash polygamy, and it's you you or your partner can feel attracted to others while still feeling attracted to each other. It's not that, you, like we were saying, it's not that you have the one person kind of waiting on you at home. It's a little bit more freedom, I guess. 
um, but in an ethical way. And you and your partner can have multiple people at the same time. And one person may not want to have sex or do certain sex acts or kinks, and while the other one wants to. So you can kind of have, you know, both the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. I guess. And you may want to experience romantic love or sex with some people of a different gender than your partner is, just depending on your sexuality. So maybe polyamorous for you. <laughs> the idea yeah. of dating multiple people feels liberating or appealing to you, or if there's more kind of experimenting that you want to do, just out of curiosity. Yeah, I think it just in general, like, opens the doors to, like, a lot more opportunities and experiences and, like, you know... I think in a way it can put less pressure on the like one partner mm -hmm. like if they don't want to do something sexually or romantically and they're okay you're both okay with you like finding that somewhere else then I think that's great <laughs> because it's consensual it's not cheating it's yeah. consensual if it's not behind somebody's back it's it's like a clear kind of boundary in the relationship yeah, yeah. so Anna do you want to tell us about your list of pros for polyamory Yes. So maybe those who listened to last episode gathered this when I was talking about kind of my girlfriend and my boyfriend, but I've been practicing polyamory for two and a half years now or so. And whenever I first got into it, I kind of went through a period, uh, like a swell where I was just learning like lots and lots about it when I was really excited. Um, and I made a list of reasons like for me personally of why I kind of wanted to get into it and what I liked about it. And I think now, like two and a half years later, reading this list, I think it's still extremely true. Um, so I thought I might go through and read some of those for you guys. Yeah, um, share it. <laughs> before I read them, there was one thing, though, Sydney, that you were just talking about that I really like, which is like, rationally, you cannot always expect one partner to fulfill all of your needs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just like expecting one person to tick every single box, like, I want them to be athletic and go camping with me, but also I want them to cook with me in the kitchen. And also I want them to satisfy my every sexual need and also come home with my family and like... Yeah, you know, there is a lot to put on a person. <laughs> yeah. And also I want them to be my best friend and, you know, like there's mm -hmm. just so much that you could want from a single person. And so there's something so lovely about kind of getting some of those needs met from one person and then getting those needs, different needs met from a different person because, yeah, it can take a lot of pressure off of your partner to, like, be the most perfect partner and satisfy you in every single way. Yeah, yeah so. I can see that. And I feel like that also applies. Like, you wouldn't expect, like, you wouldn't have one single friend who you expect to, like, be your friend that you do everything with, you know? So exactly. it makes sense that, like, you would want multiple people to fulfill, like, different things. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because like when you think about your friends, and I know when I think about my friends, it's like, oh, well, there's that one friend and we do photography together because we both love doing photography. So we'll do photo shoots. And then there's that one friend that I party with on Friday nights. And like, yeah. we go out. And there's the friend who wants to go to Sonic at all hours <laughs> of the day. There's the friend you run with. Like, yeah. yeah friends you just like movie binge with, you know, so we don't expect everything from our friends and we don't actually have to expect everything from our partners as well. And I feel like there can be, like, resentment if you are in a monogamous relationship and you're looking for more and they're not fulfilling something that you want to do. And, like, obviously you're not going to force them to do that because that's not okay. Um, but, yeah, I feel like that could build up. So if you're kind mm -hmm. of, like, getting that somewhere else, then it is, like, good for that relationship with that yeah. person. I mean, Anna, is it possible really to have all of these healthy, thriving kind of relationships with multiple people? It is. <laughs> I think that, like, when people ask me about polyamory, just, like, generally, like, how it's been for me, I feel the need to be, like, really honest and say that it's given me some of the hardest experiences of my life and has actually been really challenging at times, but it also has made me feel more fulfilled than anything else, and it has, like, added so much meaning to my life and also given me my happiest moments. So it's Aww. kind of, like, enriched my life in a lot of ways and so I think kind of the struggles that come along with it aren't necessarily small per se I think everyone is going to struggle to a different level or thrive to a different yeah. level it's just like I mean, relationships are just hard yeah it's yeah. going to come easier to certain people but I think in general like for me the struggles and the challenges that I do face I just personally find them worth it and I do feel like that's the case with a monogamous relationship as well. Like, yeah, you're going yeah. to have hard times and, like, you have to work for it, but, like, it's worth it because you enjoy being with that person. Absolutely. For persons. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in that case, yeah. Absolutely. And I do definitely think it's possible, like, to have multiple healthy relationships in poly. Mm -hmm. And, of course, like, polyamorous relationships can be toxic, just like monogamous ones, you know. Yeah depends all on the people that you're dating and, like, choosing to connect with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll read a couple of my kind of top reasons. 
So one is that polyamory removes the possessiveness from love. I don't like the idea of someone being mine and mine only. I want them to be free to explore and navigate this life in a way that maximizes their happiness. Like, I want them to feel free to kiss a friend if they feel the urge. If like there's somebody that they really connected with, like, years ago, and that friend is, like, visiting town, and, like, they're presented with, like, this really special, amazing moment. I want them to be able to do that. I want them to spend time with anyone that brings them joy. I basically just, I want my partners to be as fulfilled as possible because I think that life is short and it can be really hard. So given that life can be so hard, like I just want the people that I'm around and for myself, I just want us to like get all of the love that we can. And so I think polyamory is kind of one way to do that, to just like stuff in as much love as kind of you can. And another thing is that I personally believe like the idea that you can only love one person at a time is a social construct, which Mm -hmm. is not to say that it's a bad one per se. But like if we go back to kind of the friend example, like think about the way that we love our friends. Like does having one friend mean you cannot possibly enjoy the company of another friend? Like does having a second friend somehow ruin the connection you have with your oldest friend? So, like, we manage to love our mothers, fathers, siblings simultaneously. But why is it that, you know, we have enough love to go around for all of these relationships, but then when it comes to romantic love, it suddenly becomes weird to think we can only have that with one person. Like, why would that not apply to maybe romantic love as well? Because I feel like the thing with me, like, I'm in a monogamous relationship, Mm -hmm. and, like, I might see somebody on the street or something. Not on the street. I mean, just walking (laughs) around in passing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody on the street. Anywhere. But anyway, I digress. (laughs) I feel like I can see people and maybe be a little attracted to them. Mm -hmm. But just for me, I can only make that, like, strong romantic connection to one person at a time. Yeah. At least for me right now. But it's cool that you think of it in such a different way. Because I think I equate it, going back to the friends example, how you would have a best friend Mm -hmm. and still multiple other friends, but you would have your one best friend. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I think of my boyfriend. And, like, maybe everybody else who maybe I would be, could see myself being attracted to or could see myself with in the future, an alternative future. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of how I think of it. But that's cool. It's nice to hear a different perspective. And I feel like there's this misconception, too, that, like, polyamory people hate monogamous people or think it's really (laughs) stupid. And honestly, they're probably, that does exist in some form. Yeah, just in the same way people think polyamory is not a real, like, thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, it goes back and forth, like, But just in my opinion, like, all of our, like, time and resources are limited. And so if you and your partner are making the conscious decision, like, hey, with the resources and time that we do have, do you want to just focus on each other? And, like, what you're saying, like, have that best friend dynamic, like, just you and me. And, like, if that's what you both want, Mm -hmm. then there's nothing at all inherently unethical about that. Like you both want, not just you want, and the yeah. other person wants to explore some other options. Yeah, and so, yeah. like, I do believe, like, monogamy and polyamory, like, are both super ethical practices. It's just about, like, yeah, whatever you and your partner want. So another thing that I would like to talk about is, like, I think the way polyamory promotes really beautiful communication for me. Mm-hmm. So, like, not only do you need to discuss your expectations and feelings around trying polyamory with your pal, like, if you're opening it up or maybe you're starting a poly relationship, but you're definitely going to have the opportunity to discuss feelings of jealousy and insecurity as well. So, like, all of this makes for a very vulnerable and intimate conversation in which, like, two individuals who care for each other very much can work together to alleviate worries and and increase clarity around those feelings. And so I think like conversations like this or any kind of serious conversation you'd have with a partner just makes for a really great bonding experience. Because I've definitely experienced where like I'm feeling jealous or I'm feeling insecure and I don't really want to talk about it with my partner because I want to be strong and I want to be good at polyamory and I I don't maybe want to talk about kind of the hard parts. Yeah. But then I do, I, I realized that like, you know, I, that that's the healthy thing to do is like to just communicate these things with my partner. And then like, I'm able to get assurance and clarification and like validation and like all of those things feel so good. And I'll like come out of that conversation feeling much closer with them than I did before. Mm-hmm. And so that always just feels really good to like literally feel those feelings of insecurity just kind of go like loop and just kind of <laughs> go down a little bit and like suddenly everything feels better. And so... I just, I like the way it's affected my ability to communicate with people and the kind of vulnerable, intimate conversations that it has created for me. Yeah, and I think 
We kind of talked about it already. It allows you to explore your sexuality more easily. So we were using Definitely. the example of like if you're bisexual or like you're wanting to date someone different, there's that. And like later in the episode, you know, we're going to get talking about kink and BDSM. But like that's another thing is like maybe your partner is not a very kinky person, but you really want to kind of explore this kinkier side of yourself. So maybe that's something that you could get from another partner. And it doesn't mean you have to end your relationship with your current partner. I think sometimes like it's easier to find deal breakers in monogamy because you're gonna eventually find something that, you know, is like enforcing this limitation and like, yeah, it's it, not all the way there for you. Yeah. And it for you, it might not be worth it. You could love the heck out of your partner, but you're like, dang, I mean, I just came out, like, I really want to go on a date with a woman, or I really want to go on a date with a man, or I really want to explore this, like, kink identity that I think that I'm interested in, and, like, in a monogamous structure, that would be a deal breaker, but polyamory weirdly can, like, save and prioritize, like, existing connections rather than destroying them, Mm -hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Oh, I've never, I've never heard it like that, like, at all. That's crazy. So now that we've talked about what polyamory is and kind of the benefits of it let's talk about what polyamory is not because there are a lot of misconceptions about it so first of all this should be obvious and I can't believe we have to say it but polyamory is not a disorder it's not abnormal there's not something wrong with you so obviously like we've been talking about you can be attracted to and you can love more than one person at once so there's nothing like off in your brain (laughs) if this is you don't need to admit it (laughs) yeah so I think that's really important to emphasize and we'll talk about that when we get into BDSM as well but I think a lot of stigmatized communities in like sex and relationships have been pathologized which is like really which is preventing it from being normal yeah Mm -hmm. it's like very upsetting and very disturbing in a lot of ways but definitely like growing up I thought you know I had to find my one true love or whatever and like I would get in a relationship and then be like well what if I wanted to date someone else and you kind of just think well I guess I have to end this relationship and literally find somebody else that's not or that's more perfect and like I kind of said earlier it's definitely not cheating it's not the same thing as being a lying kind of a jerk it's these types of relationships and polyamory are consensual and therefore not cheating and it's possible to cheat and break boundaries in these types of relationships as well. So you can be trashed in a monogamous <laughs> relationship, a polyamorous relationship, any kind of relationship with another person. Yeah. And polyamory doesn't mean that anything and everything goes. And you have to respect your partner's boundaries no matter what kind of relationship you're in. And you have to be openly communicating about kind of what those boundaries are with those partner or partners. And we've yeah. talked extensively about consent, communication, and boundaries in our past episodes. Yeah, go check back those and give those a listen if you are one of those people Highly recommend. who uh, don't understand and need to run that back a little bit. Yeah, I do think there's like definitely, that's one of the big misconceptions is like, if you're in a polyamorous relationship, then just like anything goes and you're open to whatever and like you're so easygoing, you don't even care what your partners are doing. Like, that's obviously not the case. In any type of relationship, you need consent and you need to set your boundaries mm-hmm. about what you expect and what you're okay with. So another form of non-monogamous relationship is an open relationship. And when I think of that, I feel like it's looser than a polyamorous relationship, but I feel like it's also, again, it requires communication and boundary setting. I think of it as like the beginner's version of a polyamory. <laughs> like this is where, you know, a couple starts their kind of journey. I feel like a lot is like maybe we can open this up and that's how they word it a lot. Because what's the difference? Is it just not forming that kind of long-term relationship versus in a polyamorous relationship you are? And I think each term is up to definition by the people in the relationship too. Right, like yeah. you can define your sexuality however you see fit, like how you feel it so I think you can define your relationship however you see that it works as well I think like the biggest difference is open relationships are usually like it kind of tends to mean sexually open that's like, what you, I was just about to yeah, say yeah but like polyamory is more emphasizing that idea of like emotionally connecting with other partners yeah. and maybe would allow for like yes you can have sex with other people and you can also fall in love with them and be in love with them and stay in love with me and like an open relationship is going to be more likely to prioritize kind of the existing partner. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have a couple and they're, like, what you were saying, ever and like, deciding to open it up, like, they're going to prioritize each other in kind of very strict way. And, like, the other partners are going to be more, like, kind of 
I don't know. Yeah, Treat I've heard it a there are rules like some people are like, well, sh- they have to come to the house first, and they have to know that our situation is not. They can just come in and kind of take you away. It's mm-hmm. this is definitely a sexual thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's so, interesting. So in that way, like, could it could someone be in a polyamorous open relationship? So like, you have your partners that like are your partners, mm-hmm. but you're also in an open relationship. So you allow your partners, and you all agree that you can like go have sex with other people that aren't part of the mm-hmm. relationship. Definitely. Labels. Yeah, I think that's good to know. There are, like, infinite number of ways to Mm -hmm. do anything, I think. Yeah. You know. And we can talk about swinging, too, because that's kind of an... To me, I mean, this might not be true, but I think of swinging as, like, old-fashioned polyamory. Mm -hmm. It makes (laughs) me think about... Yeah, key parties and stuff like that. And swinging, to me, is almost, like, a more strict version of open relationships because typically you're together. Mm -hmm. When you're being open, you're Mm -hmm. together. So, like, you might have two couples that, like, go to a party and you can kind of be on a sort of date with this other couple and then, like, at the end of the night, you're swapping partners. And so, you know... I'll be honest, like, I tend to think of swinging as being a bit, like, straighter. Like, I tend to think of straight people doing swinging more frequently because, like, you know, the women will swap and, like, and that kind of thing. So, and, like, with swinging, you can have things called, like, full swap and soft swap. So, soft swap would be more, like, they can, whenever the partners swap, like, you can flirt with each other and maybe make out and maybe, like, use hands but like a full swap might be like you can actually penetrate each other's partners you can like kind of have more quote-unquote full sex with each other's partners that makes sense so like yeah if a couple's like opening up for the first time they might say like in their dating bio for example like currently only open to soft swap right now because Hmm. they're just kind of baby stepping it so that would be some different types of non-monogamy that are kind of included in polyamory because i think polyamory can be a bit of an umbrella term but they're also distinct in some ways yeah and this last one I think is one that I kind of you know had in my brain like predisposed about polyamorous relationships is like in my head I'm like that's a lot of work like that's more difficult than just one person more hard relationships yeah (laughs) or some people may think that like it's more likely to fail as a relationship or it's just a recipe for disaster so I think we we mentioned this already but like all relationships are going to have their challenges and their obstacles and struggles so there's like this misconception that polyamorous relationships are polyamorous because they can't like commit to a relationship or like keep a relationship but there is actually a study <laughs> in 2018 <laughs> that found that there's no difference in relationship satisfaction between monogamous and polyamorous relationships so I think that's just like a really important thing to know and I feel like that can kind of like correct almost all of the misconceptions about polyamory like right there there's also studies that show like non-monogamous couples have like more satisfaction in like their sexual lives or like their Mm -hmm. like orgasm frequency and like orgasm intensity is higher than monogamous folks so that's kind of interesting it makes sense because you're allowing yourself kind of to seek those pleasures or like the Mm -hmm. desires that you have Mm -hmm. versus in a monogamous relationship you kind of can't do that Mm -hmm. and like not outside of the partner I mean yeah and not everyone does polyamory for this reason but I mean a lot of times you can't have partners who have maybe raised children together and they've been married and maybe like their sex life just isn't the same as what it used to be and maybe that's okay with them like they're not necessarily interested in reigniting their sex life or something like that and they just are interested in opening it up and trying it with different people so you can definitely have like a very sexually and emotionally fulfilling relationship and still want to do polyamory but Mm -hmm. polyamory can also be nice if like you're in a relationship that you're committed to for financial reasons children you know whatever it is and like sexually you're just wanting to have more experiences yeah I want to ask you a little bit because we're talking about Kind of like the idea, like, just adults are doing polyamory. So what is it like kind of as a younger person, I guess? <laughs> Not really tied down necessarily financial-wise or mm-hmm. house-wise or anything to anyone just being out here exploring. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, like, ironically in my head, this is the first time anyone has heard this out loud because I feel like it's such, a, <laughs> such an egotistical thing to think. But sometimes I'll come home and I'll be like, ah, oh, my bachelor pad. <laughs> but even though at the same time I have, you know, my girlfriend sleeping with me like three nights a week in my bachelor pad. Like, um, but actually, it's I think it's a good time to like be young and poly because it is gaining a lot of traction. And I think most polyamorous people are probably under 30, I would mm-hmm. say. Like, 
it's just getting to be a lot more common, I think, with the younger generations, which is cool and exciting. That is so. cool, because I feel like I always thought it was just something, you know, like kind of how you were saying old married people do to, like, mm-hmm. spice things up. <laughs> right. It's kind of cool to think that it's people our age, like, just out there kind of exploring things that, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago they wouldn't have been allowed to kind of do. Mm-hmm. I feel like it almost coincides with, like, hookup culture, too. Mm-hmm. but, like, in a different, more structured, consensual way. Like, you're not just walking around the frats, walking home with someone like I did freshman year. Like, every <laughs> weekend I was going home with someone different. This time, like, right now I have a partner who we're friends with benefits. We just have sex, and then we hang out with our mutual friends outside of that. And, like, it's nice. Yeah, <laughs> it just seems like peak 2022 that you can put this in your bio and find people who mm-hmm. specifically identify in like wanting this kind of relationship. So cool. Yeah. yeah. So cool. It definitely depends on where you are. Like, it's so hard in Oklahoma Very. to, like, be poly and date people. Um, I think, you know, you're going to have better luck if you're in a big city. But I think it's growing, and it's it's kind of everywhere. So yeah. it's it's a fun time to be poly right now. It's like, okay, this is <laughs> Put just, that on a sticker. This is not yeah. educational. These are just Anna Crossway's personal opinions and thoughts. <laughs> but I think it's the most fun to, like, be something when it's coming up. Like, I always feel like, man, in, like, 40 years, no one's going to give a shit I'm gay. Like, right? <laughs> It's cool now. I'm, I'm in a phase where, like, I'm discriminated against enough that it's also cool for the accepting the people. The struggle. It's, it's probably your struggle right <laughs> it's now. It's appreciated, you know? But so I think it's kind of, like, a fun time to be poly because even though it's gaining so much traction, there's still a bit of that feeling of, like, wow, I can, like, educate people and I can talk mm-hmm. to people about this. And it's, like, kind of just a, a different exciting thing you liked it before it was cool i was about to say literally hipster like a pioneer Mm -hmm. yeah no these are not really like desirable opinions on my behalf it's just just being honest yeah i love it do you have any advice for anyone oh my goodness (laughs) because like i know i've been trying to like branch out like i've been single for a year working on myself and now three snaps (laughs) thanks um but like you know i've been talking to a couple people and like Every time we get somewhere, they're like, I want to be monogamous and, mm-hmm. like, just us. And I'm like, ooh, let no. me take a step back. <laughs> so, like, what would you say? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is hard because, like, being in Oklahoma, you're just mm-hmm. not going to find, like, a ton of poly people. But I think they're out there and they can be found. I mean, definitely, like, just putting it in your bio is a huge thing because that will, like, automatically eliminate so many people. If they see it. There's plenty <laughs> of times I swear people don't. Like, mm-hmm. I've had times where I've matched with somebody and we've been chatting, and, like, I have it big and large and obvious in my bio, but then they'll go follow me on Instagram or something, and then, like, I had one person take a screenshot of the picture with me and my girlfriend, and then, like, Snapchat it to me and be like, who's that? What's, what's this about? <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? Oh <laughs> you, are you literate? This is literally enough. loud and clear in my bio, and I guess you just missed it, because, yeah, then I looked, like, super sketchy, I guess, like, with the Instagram, but... Gosh, I don't know. I guess all you can really do is just be honest about it and, like, patient. (laughs) And I think one thing that's helpful is also, like, the longer you do it, you start to recognize, like, what are, like, problematic dynamics, kind of. And, like, I feel like I'm at the point now where I could read, like, a couple's bio, like, on a dating app and be like, oh, yeah. Like, this is just, I can tell that you guys are, like, having problems in your relationship and you want someone else to come in and fix it all up okay, and like give you not the, a serious kind of and, yeah um, and like give you the excitement that you need or mm-hmm. I can tell that you guys are like you know interested in polyamory because like he wants to watch you make out with another girl not because like philosophically you have an appreciation for the practice mm-hmm. you can kind of start to learn like how to piece out like who does polyamory because like that is just ethically how they want to live their lives and it's like this conscious choice they've made for kind of their lifestyle versus, like, they're super problematic and you're going to end up, like, you know, I don't know, just kind of having a a stressful or being used, really, by them. I think that's a really good transition into just kind of closing out this part of the podcast. We were going to kind of talk about questions, so, like, questions we may have for you or questions that you get that are not okay being in a polyamorous relationship. So one that came up to me as you were talking earlier that I'm sure a lot of other people have is like, did you feel the need to come out as polyamorous? And like, is that a common practice usually? Or is it just like, like, how do you... Or it's something you just kind of do on the DL and don't really talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that I'll like first off start by saying that I think kind of your like 
sexual and affective identities are different than polyamory. People think about this differently. There's kind of two camps. There's the people who think about polyamory as being this identity-based thing. So like they'll be like, I found out I was polyamorous at this age, or I mm -hmm. discovered that I was polyamorous at this age. And that's totally a valid way to think about it. Like for me personally, I think about polyamory as a practice and like a way of being and something that you do rather than something that I am inherently. Mm -hmm. But even having said that, I do think like the words like coming out, like as a way to describe the process is pretty accurate because it's very parallel to like coming out as queer just because, you know, your friends might not accept it, your family might not accept it, people aren't going to necessarily understand it, it could change the way people think of you. Yeah. So I think I did kind of have over the past couple of years, like multiple types of coming out. So like, telling my friends would be like the first step and like, because I want to be able to talk to my friends about my life. And so like, they definitely knew every single detail as I like, kind of got involved. And then like the second step was telling my family, which like for me was definitely the hardest thing. I had kind of some of my family members that were like really accepting and really understanding. And then like some family members who are still struggling and can't quite wrap their head around it. And then after I had come out to my family, I was like, okay, well, everyone that matters to me knows now. So now mm -hmm. I can like come out on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I had a kind of a moment where I like posted pictures of my boyfriend for the first time. Um, and I had been posting pictures of my girlfriend and I, you know, for like two years. And so I think like to my Instagram followers, I was just kind of monogamous with her during mm -hmm. that time. And I personally chose not to make like some emotional post about it or anything. I was just like, yeah, I no, here's my boyfriend. Everybody look, he's super like <laughs> cute and fun and sweet, you know. Um, so that's just kind of how I did it. But I think that's kind of what I was thinking <clears throat> when I had this question in mind too. I thought it's not really coming out saying, oh, I'm polyamorous. It's more like kind of just displaying your multiple mm -hmm. relationships. Displaying the polyamorous. Yeah. yeah. It's not like you're, yeah. you're like, mom, dad, I'm polyamorous. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. mom, dad, this is my boyfriend and this is my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I've also talked to my therapist about coming out and all that. And she's phrased it as a welcoming in instead of a yeah, coming out. Yeah, because it's introducing these people in your life it's, to you people are, in your life. Mm -hmm. And she focuses on you are confident in who you are. You are confident that what you're doing is right for you. Mm -hmm. And it is welcoming everyone you care about into that mm -hmm. so that they can appreciate it with you. Yeah, that's that. a great way to put it because that's how I felt too. I definitely do not tell my parents every time I hook up with somebody. <laughs> no. I mean, like, who that's, does? Who, like, yeah, I mean, who like needs to know about that? I'm not like, I don't post people that I have kind of more casual connections with, but mm -hmm. definitely if someone is really important to me and like, I'm spending a lot of my time with them, I want my parents to know about that person. So that's kind of what drove me eventually to tell my parents and like come out like as Polly on social media was just being like okay this person is a huge part of my life I mm -hmm. want that reflected in other areas of my life yeah. so that was kind of a question that came to my mind do you bring multiple partners around your family or like around your friends or like how do you like manage yeah. that I guess it's definitely just for example like friend hangouts like my partners and I like we will divvy up like what time we want to spend together and if there's like a certain event that maybe like it would make more sense for my boyfriend to come to this because oh like he's a writer so he would love to hear this talk on you know whatever this thing is related to literature maybe so like I would take him so my ex and I are still really good friends I think we talked about this last last podcast uh they were the one who I pulled out the insomnia book oh, on yeah. our first date <laughs> oh, <funny. laughs> like we're still I didn't... oh you stalked them <laughs> yeah, I remember this. like we're still best friends so sometimes like they'll come you know to Tulsa with their girlfriend or something and like Jerrica might possibly be more likely to hang out with me during that situation just so like I don't know, maybe the dynamic of all of us being, like, queer women and non-binary people, like, fits better. But in general, I would say, like, my boyfriend and my girlfriend, like, are kind of equally mixed in mm -hmm. to my life. Yeah. Gotcha. Maybe, like, take my girlfriend to my dad's Easter dinner, but then, like, my boyfriend will come to my mom's Easter dinner. And then we kind of, it's just, like, a process of, like, kind of rotation. And, like, that stuff is some of the hardest stuff in poly. <laughs> I was gonna say, you gotta have a planner with days yeah. of the week and yeah. or something. And it can be really, like, emotional, you know, like, having maybe another partner go to your partner's, like, home for the first time and meeting mm -hmm. their parents. Like, that is some of the stuff that can be trickier in poly, but I think there's ways to, like, figure it out and 
do it somewhat well. So just one final thing while we're on this topic before we transition. As far as questions, like what are questions that you maybe get asked that just like are not appropriate? Because obviously you're very open about it and not everyone is. But like as someone that's really open about it, like what questions are just like not okay? I think the most common question I get is I'll tell somebody and they'll be like, ooh, do you guys all have sex together? (laughs) And... I mean, that is a question that I would probably be willing to answer to almost anyone, but I think that that question is kind of like, has all these assumptions with it. Like, for example, that polyamory is just about sex. And also, like, if you someone came up to me and was telling me about their partner, I'd be like, whoa, like, how often do you guys, you know, do it? Like, that's yeah, not appropriate. Yeah. I feel like a general guideline is if it's inappropriate to ask anybody, then just don't ask anybody yeah. in a non-monogamous yeah. relationship. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, if you want to ask a monogamous person that automatically, then maybe don't ask a polyamorous person. Like, I think, like, questions that feel good and nice are, like, how did you meet your partners? Who are they? Where are they from? What do they do? Like, normal questions, but immediately just wanting to know intimate your sex sexual life. details. Wait, I think it's very parallel to the question of, like, lesbians getting asked well how do you guys do it Mm -hmm. I mean like maybe like somebody would be fine answering that question but when that's the first question out of your mouth it's just like I don't know it's a little dehumanizing and so I think that if you know somebody well or you know the person is willing to talk about their sex life then yeah absolutely why not but if you don't know the person very well and you don't know much about polyamory maybe don't shoot out of the gate with sexual questions or immediately being like if they're like a couple being like wow so like what do you guys get jealous about like, excuse me, we're not in couples therapy. Yeah. We're here. We're, <laughs> Who are you? We're at a party and we're here to play Uno. We are not here <laughs> to, like, dissect our our kind of struggles to you. Like, mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about these, like, kind of more serious or, like, hard parts of our relationship all the time hashing it out in public at parties. Yeah. You know, I will honestly talk about the struggles I've had, but I don't want to do that all the time or in public spaces. Like... Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, I feel like that's something all, honestly, stigmatized communities face, because it's like people, mm-hmm. something that's not normal to them, they they just feel like they have a right to know, and sometimes it's like none of your business, and you exactly. have to respect boundaries of, yeah. like, of just, just in life, guys. Yeah. yeah. And kind of, like, along this vein, I think I get asked a lot about just jealousy in general, and I do think this one is a little less invasive, because I understand that people are just really curious about, like, how do you handle that? And so I don't mind this question as much, especially like when you're just asking one person. Like I said, like, I think asking a couple that like in a public space is kind of like intense. But just if you're curious and talking to a poly person, I think this is a good question. But to kind of answer that question a little bit for me personally, I think the first thing I would say is like jealousy does not automatically go away in polyamorous relationships. I think it is true that maybe people who tend to be less jealous might be more drawn towards polyamory. But it's definitely not the case that, like, jealousy in polyamory is something to do away with or that it's something unacceptable or something to get rid of. It's, like, shouldn't be viewed like some kind of disease or Mm -hmm. a failing. It's very normal, and I think it's, like, all of us can get insecure at times. And so insecurity is really kind of, like, what drives jealousy. And so, like, for me, doing polyamory, it's been not about getting rid of the jealousy, but kind of, like, repackaging it in creative ways and, like, learning to cope with it and handle it in healthier ways other than letting it just like eat me up you know yeah Uh, and so like a big thing that I think is important is like when you're feeling jealous to think about okay I'm feeling really jealous about this specific person but like what is really going on is Mm -hmm. it that I feel like my partner is having three dates with them but like is like shortening the amount of time that we spend together now am I feeling not prioritized or like am I feeling like um I don't know. It's kind of just like trying to discover like what emotion it's is below the, root. the jealousy. Yeah, because so then when you discover like, okay, well, I think the reason I'm feeling jealous about this person is because my partner and I used to spend three nights together, but ever since they met this new person, mm-hmm. you know, we've lost some time together. And so I'm feeling kind of rationally insecure. You know, a lot of yeah. times like our insecurities can be irrational, but they can also just be rational insecurities. And so just talking to your partner and saying like, hey, I'm feeling really hurt because like we used to have this much quality time together and now I feel like we're losing it and you know that's hard for me and then like we were talking about earlier then you can kind of have that vulnerable conversation where you kind of come out of the conversation feeling even more connected and maybe 
feeling more stable and more secure. And like that in turn is going to reduce the feelings of jealousy. The growth that takes though. The oh, growth yeah. that that takes. <laughs> yeah. To admit when you are being the crazy one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hate that. I oh, definitely even recently had to be like, all right. So, you know, when I was upset Friday night and I wouldn't tell you why, it's because I was having like these really emotional thoughts and I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to admit that I was thinking them, but I was, and I've just got to tell you. And so then your partner can just kind of be like, okay, well, they're there. Let's talk, <laughs> let's, let's talk about it, you know. All right. So now that we're done talking about polyamory a bit, we're going to move into another community that we feel like in maybe your sex ed program or in your you know, OG sex talk with your mom, your (laughs) OG mother sex talk. If uh, it existed. If it existed, (laughs) maybe did not discuss this particular community, which is the kink community. So we're going to be talking about BDSM. And before we get into it too much, we do want to say that like BDSM and polyamory do not necessarily go together. I do think polyamorous people maybe like might have the tendency to be queer more frequently or be like kink involved more frequently, but they don't necessarily go together. So we're just kind of wanting to talk about this community um, in addition to polyamory. So first of all, I want to start off by saying that like the kink community is and has always been a bit predominantly queer, a queer practice. Um, it's really not talked a lot about in pop culture, which is why we're including it in the stigmatized kind of category. And when it is included in pop culture, it has a tendency to be sensationalized and inaccurate. Fifty so, Shades of Grey, we're looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like, Fifty Shades of Grey was so popular. It had, like, every Midwestern, suburban, middle-aged white mom. <laughs> like, I heard the, that The weekend song. That's how I heard it for the first mm-hmm. time. Because I saw mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. But, yeah, so it just, like, got everyone really excited. But I don't think it was necessarily an accurate portrayal of the kink community or of BDSM, but that would be an example of kind of where we're seeing what little representation there is. And something else like people might have heard about, like if you're somebody who goes to Pride or you have queer friends who have talked about this, whatever, is like a lot of times there will be in like a Pride parade, for example, like a group of people like all wearing leather and like kind of the leather daddies or, you know, whoever kind of like the kink group and like there's a lot of debate about whether or not kink should be allowed in pride parades and part of this is kind of similar to the conversation or like what I was talking about earlier where I was like you know um polyamory some people think of it as an identity and some people think about it as a practice so kind of same thing here a lot of people are saying well kink is a practice it's something that you do it's not necessarily like an identity that is the same as like being pansexual or being bisexual or being a lesbian. And I don't really know particularly where I fall in this. Yeah, neither kind do of. I. If you had put a gun in my head and told me to make a decision, I wouldn't really know. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can say is like because kink has been predominantly a queer practice, I think that culturally there's reasons for it to be in the parade. And kink is queer and kind of like the queerest sense of the word queer Mm -hmm. as it being um, different and uh, outside the norm. And yeah, yeah. so I think that's another reason that maybe it really deserves to be included. But yeah, I thought this was really interesting because I didn't even know that this was like a debate. Like Mm -hmm. I know people at Pride are, you know, wearing leather and stuff like that, but I never took it that far and like thought that this was a controversy. But, you know, my first thought was, well, if we are saying that kink is included in pride, then it's kind of, like, equating it to, like, being oppressed the same way that, like, LGBTQ plus people are oppressed, which, like, to me, I'm like, no, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But, like, the more that I've learned about it and, like, talking about it, because kink has, like, been intertwined with the queer community for so long and is part of that history, like, I understand it. And, like, they are stigmatized. That's why we're talking about the kink community in this episode. And one of the articles I looked at, like, literally said that kink was associated with Stonewall. So it's, Mm -hmm. like, it... It's it's definitely very interesting. And then I I guess there's the debate about, you know, if there's kids at Pride and you're, like, 
almost naked or whatever, which that wasn't, that isn't even something that crossed my mind because I don't, I don't know. But also there's all the little girlies bopping around mm-hmm. and like the glitter all over their yeah. boobs. Yeah. Like, you're afraid of leather, so your kid's seeing leather at Pride, then that's yeah. what you see. Yeah. Like, pride in general is like a sexually liberated space. Yeah. So yeah. like you're gonna see nudity, you're gonna, like sexuality is like gonna be a part of it. So the exactly. only main argument I've seen against it is possibly triggering activities mm-hmm. like people don't consent to seeing you know some parts of bdsm in mm-hmm. public they haven't consented to be being part of that dynamic so maybe not the most extreme things should be on display in a parade but like mm-hmm. yeah. i don't see the problem with people being like identifying as yeah. kinky in, in the, the parade, context yeah, yeah. yeah and i mean i feel like if you're gonna have a little workshop on flogging like mm-hmm. Pride is not the best space for that. And yeah. I've and I've never seen people trying to really do right. that anyways. Yeah. So I think you're right. Like there's definitely things that could be triggering, but you know, that's for a different place and a different time. So in the past, kink has been pathologized and mm-hmm. it's viewed as evil or something wrong if you enjoy it or participated in. Go ahead, Sydney. So as a psych major, <laughs> this is really interesting to me, but a lot of um, what I was looking at mentioned how people assume that if you're participating in BDSM or kink in general, then it's kind of like the result of trauma, which is interesting and I guess something I'd never thought of or knew was like a stigma. But yeah, so that's an interesting thing that is not necessarily the case. And we'll get into it later because there can be a connection between trauma and BDSM, but usually it's a positive thing where you're kind of like dealing with your trauma in that way. But yeah, it wasn't until 2010 that the APA or the American Psychiatric Association like declared kink and BDSM as not pathology. Mm-hmm. So I guess the DSM-4, DSM yeah. still has it in it, which like I don't... <laughs> yeah, so I added this to the notes because so the DSM-5, which is like the diagnostic criteria for diagnosing mental disorders, mm-hmm. does still have like you know, uh, sadism and masochism as two distinct disorders. Um, and I personally have tons of problems with this. It's gone through phases where people have said, well, if it's consensual and it's healthy, then that is not going to meet the criteria. Cause there is a criteria, um, in each of these where it says like this behavior has to be causing, um, like problems for you. It has to be, yes, it has to be putting you under some kind of distress or giving you these like negative impacts. Disrupting like your daily kind of functioning. Yeah. But then my kind of problem with it is like the other criteria are basically the definitions of sadism and masochism. And so my thing is, is that if you are enjoying those things, you're not gonna have a problem with it. Like you might have a problem with it, but like, is the problem because you're being discriminated? Like, basically, you'd have to be in this weird category of, like, genuinely being really sadistic and enjoying sadism, but for some reason, which is not having to do with society or discrimination, inherently be very troubled by it. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there is a reason, like, maybe some person did, for example, have trauma, and now because of that trauma, they're really bothered by their desire to participate in a certain dynamic. But I would not call that a mental disorder. <laughs> that is a result of just lived experience. So I honestly just feel like the DSM-5, when it has these disorders in there, I'm like, who are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Who are these people that are supposed to be fitting these criteria? Because I'm not sure that, like, they really exist. And if and kind of my thing is, like, I remember people would say, well, if you are so drawn towards masochism and so drawn towards this that you are missing work, that it's negatively impacting your relationship with your partner, blah, blah, blah. That's what would fit that category. And are we talking about sadism and masochism in sexual acts or yeah. just in general? Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to say, <laughs> but it makes sense in the yeah. context of sexual acts. I mean, generally, I think you can enjoy sadism and masochism for non-sexual reasons, but generally, yes. Like in this, we can we can talk about that more later. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, but kind of my problem with like this description is that like, if you are somebody who's like missing work because of your preoccupation with BDSM or it's like impacting your ability to live your life, like probably that's something more like an addiction disorder. Right. It's not it's the not actual practice. being the disorder. Okay, I yeah. see what you're saying. It's, I'm with you. I'm with yeah, you. it's not like the practice. It's like the actual preoccupation. And you can have that kind of preoccupation with gambling or mm-hmm. with anything else. So, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I want to say that I think we have come far to Sydney, but also the DSM-5, it, it really bothers me. <laughs> I was like, I'm a counseling student, and we had a kind of diagnosis class this past semester, and so we talked about that, and ooh, I was bothered. <laughs> Kinks and BDSM can be part of a healthy monogamous relationships as well as queer relationships or polyamorous ones. As we talked about in the previous episode, consent and boundaries are key no matter what the scenario, and like, I really think of it as it's just another sensory input while you're having sex. Like, mm-hmm. people are into different things, you know. It's so. like, I don't know. If you wanted your partner to go hiking with you, you have to get consent first. You have to understand. <laughs> Maybe they don't like hi- hiking when it's hot. Like, you have to get an understanding yeah. kind of of what their boundaries are. And that's how you think of kink yeah. mm-hmm. in my and I, we're really going to emphasize this a lot, but, like, I think it's important to note that, like, the way we're talking about BDSM is we are assuming that this is, like, healthy and consensual mm-hmm. in every way. If it's, and I, I put something about this later, but um, in my opinion, like, in the way that I've read about it, if there's not consent, then it's not BDSM. Right. So that's kind of what we're going under. So there may be people out there like, oh, but, like, you know, if someone doesn't want it and it's happening, then, like, it is unhealthy. But in that case, like, that's sexual assault. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. physical assault. Like, that is not BDSM. So we're talking about BDSM as an agreed-upon act that is happening, like, between partners that have boundaries set. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so you guys might be wondering what BDSM stands for if you don't know. And I would say, like, while there's no entirely agreed-upon definition, um, the actual acronym BDSM stands for bondage, indiscipline, dominance, and submission, and sadism, and masochism. Wait a minute. That was more than one D and more (laughs) than one F. We're we're assuming slashes are involved. There are some slashes (laughs) happening. Yeah, they're they're in there. Some exponents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, some exponents. That's funny. BD squared, S squared, M. That's funny. Um, Yeah, so we're going to kind of try to parse out the differences between some of these and what they mean. So one thing I want to talk about first is kind of the difference between dominance and sadism. So dominance is going to have to do with like a power differential or some kind of power exchange happening between two or more people. Whereas like sadism is going to be more about the pleasure you get from inflicting pain on another person. So, like, if you have two partners and maybe one is, like, flogging the other person, for example, that could be, at the same time, both dominance and sadism, but they don't necessarily go together. Okay. Okay. And then, on the kind of other side of things, we can talk about the difference between submission and masochism. So, same thing here. Submission is going to be more about the power dynamic between two or more people and, like, what's happening in this type of play, and then masochism is going to be more about the pleasure that you're getting from receiving pain or receiving certain sensations. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we can talk a bit about the difference between dominance and topping, and then like bottoming and submission. Mm -hmm. So like top and bottom is kind of like terminology or language that has been in the queer community for a long time, and essentially it has kind of just been described as like who is penetrating the other person. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously you're not always going to actually be on top or be on bottom depending on like who's doing what, but it kind of has to do with more of like who is doing the penetrating. Who's performing the sexual act. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so for example, like dominance is not always the same thing as topping, even mm-hmm. though I think like culturally we equate the two of them quite a right. bit. Um, but you can be somebody who is maybe like topping, but you're actually in more of a submissive position. And like a lot of times this is called like service topping Mm -hmm. where like you might be the one like penetrating the other person or like kind of controlling what's happening, but you're actually like in a position of submission. You're taking orders. You're taking orders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you could, you know, be bottoming, but actually be in like a very powerful position. So that kind of has some to do with how these are all pieced out. And I don't know if you guys want to go through and talk about kind of some more explicit definitions of all of these. Uh, okay, yeah. So <laughs> some more specific terms, I guess, related to kinks is bondage. And I feel like everybody pretty much knows what bondage is. It's where you're restricting movement in some way. So using robes or fuzzy handcuffs, I don't know. <laughs> and then discipline is when you have a set of rules or punishments agreed upon before your sexual interaction with the dominant partner to kind of exert some control over a submissive partner. And you're enacting something like, because you did this, you won't come for three days. And 
I don't know how you can make that sound sexy, <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's a, it's, that's a part of the culture, I guess. It's all in what you're into, like what you want your dynamic Wait, let to me do. try that again. Because you did this, you can't come for three days. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think there are, are lots of, I don't know, kind of general explicit terms that you can talk about when it comes to the kink community. And mm-hmm. those are obviously just drops in the bucket. And then there are also some safety precautions within the BDSM community. And as always with any relationship, like we've emphasized so many times, consent is key. And I think that's the number one component, I guess, of a safe BDSM practice is having consent. And if it's non-consensual, then it is not BDSM and it's not safe. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting. Basically, like the BDSM community is where like a lot of consent practices come from and like there's a lot of terminology and like safe words and like the safe systems that we were talking about like the green light and red light like all of that kind of stuff so they definitely like it, it's healthy in that way and like we've been talking about like with consent it's it's a great thing so we're gonna go into kind of some of the specifics of that but I just think it's important to know that like there is a lot of that built into the community and it's like pretty well known with that I think that's one of the minuscule things Fifty Shades of Grey got right was I don't think the contract was right I haven't read it or watched the movie I don't want to um but when Christian Grey gives uh whatever her name is her name's Anna Anna. Dakota Johnson yeah honestly uh gives Anna the contract of their agreement it is all written out it is legally binding I think before they did anything legally binding is not ethical I I wouldn't do legally binding but like he had it laid out what his expectations were. And so that is a bigger part of the BDSM community that I think is really cool because I don't pick up on context clues. And so having rules <laughs> is nice. Get ever in a contract. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. it's okay to be explicit. Like mm-hmm. that was one of the things I was reading is like, you can have a physical written contract or mm-hmm. a verbal contract where you're talking about it beforehand. Um, but you just never want to assume things. Yeah. I think as long, I mean, the biggest thing is that you, it should always be a conversation. It should always be, like, a negotiation process. So, like, Christian Grey, like, handing her this legally binding document that's, like, here it is. And, like, this is what we're going to do. Like, take it or leave it. Like, mm-hmm. definitely, like you were saying, Evan, like, there's some things that were so right about that, about, like, you can be really explicit. You can write it all down. And, like, that's so helpful. Um but also, yeah, just always trying to think about it as, like, a process between two mm-hmm. people that is right. negotiated together um, at all times. Yeah, and we can kind of talk about some of the safety philosophies in kink. The first one that I learned about was safe, sane, and consensual. And there's really not a lot to this. Um, of course, I think consensual is a little explanatory uh, in and of itself. And then, like, safe and sane is just kind of getting at you know, we don't want to put each other in significant harm or um, insignificant risk. But another one kind of, I believe, came out kind of afterwards and gained popularity called RAC, which is risk-aware consensual kink. And I think the reason that this was like a bit of a response to SSC is the fact that like kink, I mean, I would say this about sex in general, but then like particularly about kink is that it might not always be that safe. Um, There might always be a bit of risk involved. Like you might get pregnant, you might get an STI, you might be emotionally damaged by somebody, um, you know, doing like bondage to you. Like you Mm -hmm. never know how things are going to affect you. And so because of that, there's always going to be some level of risk. You could stub your toe on the bed. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you might fall off the bed. Yeah. You might, I don't know, lose a sock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would be so awful. Not a sock. <laughs> no, and I do think the risk aware is really, like, important and interesting because, like, I feel like it's easy to say yes to something. Like, yeah, you can choke me or, yeah, you can hit me or pinch, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But then, like, if you're not aware, you know, you end up with bruises or scratches mm-hmm. and you're like, I have to go to work tomorrow mm-hmm. and there's bruises bruises on my neck you know like mm-hmm. stuff like that so even setting those boundaries about like how hard you're doing something or like mm-hmm. are you okay with me like you know having physical marks on my body like from or am I okay with having <laughs> physical marks on my body from like whatever you're doing an invisible area yeah so the risk is like very important to be aware of mm-hmm. yeah because I think like yeah, I just love the term, like, risk-aware, because, like, like you should lot, recognize yeah. that, like, if you're going to be doing breath play with somebody, if you're going to be choking someone, there is absolutely going to be risk involved mm-hmm. in that, but it's, like, 
have you researched like how to choke someone well and like how and to safely. choke them the most yeah. safely that you can because you're just kind of being like you know I'm aware that this is risky but we're gonna because this is something that's really important to both of us that like enriches our lives we're going to do it as safe as we can and mm -hmm. like whatever level of risk we can tolerate is what we will do um so kind of on that note of like why is kink important to people why is it meaningful for people I think there's all kinds of reasons um like for me personally, like kink has always been about creativity and vulnerability. It can also be about control, catharsis, and connection. Um, so we were kind of talking about this earlier, Jada, when yeah. I was like saying like, you know, sometimes for people, kink isn't always sexual. Mm -hmm. And like, I think something that I think about a lot is like the creativity aspect of kink. Mm -hmm. So like, I think about, you know, when like we're little kids and like, let's say like all of us lived in a neighborhood together and we like all went over to Sydney's house and we were like, let's play doctor. Or like, I was going to say, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> or like, let's play like we're a family or, you know, there's uh -huh. like this like fun, imaginative role kind playing. of like role playing world that you can enter that's like so enjoyable. But of course, like that wasn't sexual at the time we were doing it. So uh -huh. like you can kind of enjoy kink in ways that aren't necessarily sexual just because of like like again the creativity the vulnerability the catharsis and connection that can come from it and also just like the culture like any type of kind of stigmatized community there's going to be like comfort and like joining and like being a part of that culture so I think that can be important and like we talked about before like its ability to help people heal with trauma so like maybe you went through something that was really harmful and now maybe being able to do that same thing but in a controlled and safe environment with somebody that you trust mm -hmm. and like actively actively making the decision to let yourself have pleasure from it, even though it was this thing that caused you trauma, like can be, I think, so powerful. So I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I think is important for people is that like in our society, we have such a strict sexual script of like, mm -hmm. what is sex? Well, it's when a man and a woman, you know, like they start kissing. And after the kissing has gone on for a while, maybe, like, hands become involved. Maybe then the tops come off. And then, right. secondly, the bottoms come off. And then maybe there's, like, penetration and, like, the guy, like, penetrates her for ten minutes and then he comes and then it's over. Woo! Like, <laughs> maybe if we're getting really crazy, there's oral sex involved. Or like, a woman comes. Or maybe. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, maybe she comes. Who knows? And, like, maybe if we're getting really wild there's a vibrator involved like oh it doesn't go this far yeah you're right. <laughs> the conversation does not go this far <laughs> that's absolutely true so i something i value about kink is that it's saying there is an endless amount of ways like a way to have sex like it could be like the feeling of like feathers brushing all over your body or like there's so many ways to enjoy your your sexuality with another person or with other people that um kind of you know um abandoned this like very strict sexual script so mm -hmm. I like yeah. that a lot um and then something like for me personally I think has been my favorite thing about kink is like you will have these things about yourself that you kind of thought were dirty or shameful or bad um and it can actually be a, a source of like extreme pleasure and beauty when you find acceptance in mm -hmm. that um so maybe like when you find a partner who is interested in the same things that you are or somebody who kind of wants to go into that creative world with you it's like so incredible to just like feel validated in those feelings and like especially like we were like I was saying like the community uh -huh. like when you're involved in that like it can just be so powerful to experience that so those are some things that I think are really wonderful about kink and all of that is more meaningful than I think how kink is represented in Definitely. foreign culture and Absolutely. like I guess pop culture like consensual rack SSC conversations is not happening in porn. And I feel like even as a person who is, I don't know, more on the vanilla side of things, I guess, I don't, I like the idea of not shutting the door to like, I don't know, desires that I would want to explore maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, I like the idea. It, I like the idea of creativity and that it, at the end of the day, it's recognizing that sex is not just one type of way. Mm -hmm. And on that note, there is a lot more to the kink community than just BDSM, but obviously we don't have endless time. Um, so that's just what we decided to focus on for this episode because it's a pretty well-known one and a pretty stigmatized one. So, 
Yeah, there's tons of different communities and groups of people out there that we're not going to have the time to get into, not only because there's just the sheer number, it's just our personal experiences, Mm -hmm. we are limited. We lack kind of knowledge about, you know, lots of different communities out there. But if you're in a community we didn't talk about, it's okay. Like, (laughs) you do you. Take kind of what we... I don't know, the way we've talked about things today in kind of your relationships and the way you kind of talk about these things in your personal life. Or reach out to us and maybe we can interview you for next <gasps> season. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and then we recognize that you can be a part of multiple of these different communities. It doesn't have to be just one. And the word for that is intersectionality. Woo! Tell us, Sydney, what intersectionality yes. is. So intersectionality is very important because it's kind of like a way to understand like someone's, you know, social position in society, I Mm -hmm. guess you could say. Um, And it really just explains like the intersection of multiple identities and kind of like the experience that that creates for a person, especially when it comes to like discrimination or privilege. Um, So just a little history note is that the, the term was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe those intersections. Um, so I think it's just important to note that like intersectionality plays a huge role in stigmatization. So like, you know, if you're queer and you practice BDSM and, you know, you're black or whatever it may be, like these things are going to come together to like create more stigma. And as so. our resident women and gender studies student, yes. <laughs> um, another important thing to remember is that we can't help one group unless we help all of the intersecting groups. So nope. feminists cannot be successful until they help the black women. LGBTQ queer people can't be liberated until feminists are uplifted. Like mm-hmm. we, There will always be an overlap in your group with other groups because of the, how our society is. So we all need to band together and help each other out. Yeah. So. And I think that's something that came up a lot in this episode, like when we were talking about the overlap between like polyamory in the queer community or BDSM in the queer community. That's just like you can't ignore mm-hmm. intersectionality. You can't just focus on one identity at a time. So we just wanted to let that be known. We had a lot of discussion about kind of even just using the word stigmatized when right. talking about these communities because we don't want to put more stigma on them. But, like, unfortunately, that just is the case. We're not saying they deserve to be stigmatized. <laughs> We're just saying that that is currently the case. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of different communities and people that we didn't mention in this episode. But, yeah, we may talk about more in the future. And we just wanted to try to do a little bit of stigma erasure. Yeah, I like that. And we'd always love to hear your input or your experiences if you want them to share them with us. That would be so cool to have an episode literally devoted to just, I don't know, the personal experiences of people listening. Yeah. That'd be amazing. With that being said, thank you guys so much for listening to the last episode of season two. I'm crying on the inside. (laughs) So tune in next spring to see um, what the next cohort will have cooking. I don't know. I won't be a part of it. Sydney won't be a part of it. What about you I guys? won't either. Oh. I'm the only... Oh, no. <laughs> Carry it on. Moving <laughs> on. Carry it Everett on is strong. Gonna hopefully continue on the podcast and yeah. keep it going. I will keep it alive yeah, to I'm my gonna... last breath <laughs> <laughs> as a college student. Right. <laughs> like, oh, my like, God. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, still feel free to send us your questions, your feedback, your suggestions. If you have a personal experience that you want to be included on the podcast next, next season, like you can always reach out to us at our Gmail, which is very long, and it'll be in the description, so I'm not even going to say it. But um, yeah, and everyone will be hopefully monitoring that and yeah. <laughs> keeping track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So you should check out the description for links to our social media accounts and to our email and to all of the resources that we used in this episode if you want to look more into any of the topics that we talked about. And we'll also be plugging the other peer health educator groups down there. So. Wow. It's well, this over. is it, guys. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> you guys are graduating. Yeah. Leaving me. Well, <laughs> thank you all so much for your support and for yeah, listening. Yeah, thank you so much for everyone who reached out to me in person or virtually saying how cool this podcast was because uh, we loved it. We worked really hard on it. And hopefully we taught people some things that, you know, your mama did not talk about. Yes. I don't know. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.